Oftentimes, it's better to start with creativity to help you learn the facts. Life is too short to learn a, a list of a thousand rando words. From the campus of Stanford University, this is Schools In with your hosts, Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. Welcome to Schools In. I'm Denise Pope, Senior Lecturer with the Graduate School of Education here at Stanford. And I am with my co-host, Dan Schwartz, who is the Dean of the Graduate School of Education. I should say, because of uh, COVID and the pandemic, we are not in the studio. We are broadcasting from our own homes. And our guest today will also be broadcasting from his own home. Well, Dr. Little Kids Pope. Little kids? I don't have little kids anymore. (laughs) No, no. Well, well, we're we're going to talk about school for little kids, but uh, we could reminisce. We could reminisce. If you think back to your education and those early years, do you have like a favorite memory or a favorite grade? Ooh. So as a teacher, my favorite grade was like seventh and eighth grade, because at that age, they're old enough to reason with you, to understand, but they're young enough to still love you. So I, I teaching, I like seventh and eighth. As a student, I think seventh grade was very existential for me. I was Wait, sort of, you remember, you remember yeah, seventh I, I, grade? Yeah, I was busy questioning the meaning of life and why am I doing what I'm doing? You know, I, what, isn't that what everybody did in seventh grade? Oh my gosh, this is why you were a philosophy I was, I was like reading Nietzsche. I was reading about yeah. nihilism. No, I, no, I do remember seventh and eighth grade as sort of a dawning of like uh, the world. I don't remember it being very happy though. Well, middle school, a lot of people do not remember middle school as being happy. And actually, a lot of girls in particular don't like middle uh-huh. school. Middle mm-hmm. school is middle school can be really hard. I remember girls picking on boys in middle school. Yeah, that can yeah, happen, yeah. too. Yeah. That can happen, too. Yeah. I can tell you that when I was in, I think it was probably second grade, I used to wear a ponytail. And I remember one boy who sat behind me and he pulled my ponytail every day and I would cry. And my mom told me that means he likes you. And I just couldn't understand that whole concept. <laughs> right. And I thought, well, that's a stupid thing. But so second grade was definitely not not my so, my favorite. So this kind of turned the wrong direction. We were supposed to remember in our favorite. I know. Uh, OK, so think positive now. Think positive. What, OK, what, my what favorite. So I, I, I don't know what age it was, but there was some point. I think it was in elementary school, maybe sixth, seventh or sixth grade, maybe. And they, the teacher asked me to no longer be in the choir. And that's that's a positive. Well, she was very nice about it. She said, (laughs) I I think my voice was changing or something. And so she said, uh, you get to run the record player that plays the music that everybody's the background, everybody's sing to. And so I was very proud of that. And I did it quite well. And it was quite a gentle, gentle landing from turning out to not having a very good voice. That so is hysterical. That. that started your whole world in technology. You were the AV <laughs> guy right. and, was, it led, and it led to tech. That's right. I was spinning the platter at the age of, you know, in sixth grade. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's too funny. That's too funny. Well, lots of good grades. I, I mean, I actually remember very early on, I remember nursery school wow. and I remember, I know because I, then I have this lag where I don't remember K1, two or three, all that well. But nursery school, I remember Miss Bunny was my teacher's name. I don't know if that was her real name. And I remember playing on the playground. I remember what the playground looks like. And I remember drinking chocolate milk for snack, which was a big thing for me. Very exciting. I remember being the butterfly monitor once. 
Wow, person, you were given per- a lot of jobs. The you person, were one the of the person, kids. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've always been very responsible, Denise. Uh, they, you know, they'd wake, they'd take turns. And it was my turn to wake everybody up from nap time with the butterfly wand. Oh, I totally I know what that. you're talking about. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yes. So, so there you so, go. <laughs> all right, I'm, I'm going to pull us out of our reverie here. Although I, I kind of want to open up a photo album. Uh, no, today we're going to talk about early childhood. So we are super excited to welcome Jonas Miller to the show. He is a postdoctoral scholar at Stanford's Neurodevelopment, Affect, and Psychopathology Lab, otherwise known as the SNAP Lab. He studies brain functioning in young children and is broadly interested in how adverse and supportive environments relate to neurobiological, cognitive, and social-emotional development. Jonas, welcome. Um, I know that you were recently part of something called the New Map of Life Project at Stanford Center for Longevity. First of all, Stanford has a Center for Longevity, which is really cool. So can you tell us a little bit about the New Map of Life Project and how you were involved? Yeah, absolutely. Hi. Thanks for having me. Um, Yeah, so the the New Map of Life Project was really inspired by um, some recent work suggesting that children born today will, on average... Uh, live to be 100 years of age. So there's going to be a lot of variability around that mean. Um, nevertheless, that's a huge uh, humanitarian accomplishment. Um, and so, you know, this this idea that our current institutions, our culture, the way our society is set up is not necessarily ideal for living a 100-year-long life, right? So working until you're 65, retiring, you can't support a a 35 year retirement um, in that way. And so um, this was really an effort to bring together different scholars from different domains at Stanford to try to think about how we can redefine some of our institutions, how we can push cultural shifts in a way to help um, design sort of like a new map of life that might better fit kind of um, a century long, a century long life. So if you're living to a hundred, one thing you're saying that's different is, yeah, most people retire at 65 and that's just too long to go uh, money wise and also maybe boredom wise. So how what how does this affect kids and early childhood? Well, I think a lot of the skills and factors that drive success over the course of a long life, they're kind of rooted in things that happen in early childhood. It's not to say that early childhood is going to kind of set in stone how the rest of your life goes. Uh, Nevertheless, there are lots of things that happen in early childhood that kind of set up the foundation for those things. Um, And so, you know, it's just interesting to think about you you guys were joking around kind of before we started about, you know, you have this, um, would you take something from a different stage of life and put it in this earlier stage of life? Well, we've been thinking about, well, if you have all these extra years of life, like how would you use them? Right. How would you distribute them across the lifespan? Um, and so, I mean, as a, I'd, I'd, I'd stay a teenager longer. (laughs) Several people do Dan, several people do. (laughs) Yeah. I, I often think about, you know, what it would be like if I could go back and, and redo some of those years again. But um, anyway, I'm sorry. Yeah. Jonas, keep... <laughs> no, no, no. I, I appreciate that point. Um, as someone who studies early childhood, um, I think there's a pretty strong argument for kind of changing the way that we do some things in early childhood, even if it's at the margins, not something as 
um, kind of major is, you know, chopping off a year later in adolescence and, and moving that to, to early childhood. So like, like what? Yeah. I mean, there are other people who have argued this point very eloquently. People like Alison Gopnik at UC Berkeley. She's a developmental psychologist. The idea that we are kind of setting up schools for younger children to look more and more like schools for older children. There's some debate as to whether that's the right approach or whether we should be setting up preschool environments in a way that let children kind of develop and learn at their own pace. So how, given that your argument is, if I've got it right, it is early childhood matters more because we're living longer. And so the consequences of early childhood will linger yet another 20 years. Or how am I going to find out whether a play-oriented school versus a math-oriented school for four-year-olds is going to make a difference mm-hmm. when I, for these people when they're 95? That's a good question. Well, thank you, Denise. <laughs> <laughs> We're piling on, Jonas. <laughs> I second. That's a great question. I wish I had a great answer for it. I, I think, I mean, the evidence suggests that the things that happen in early childhood can be compounded over the course of life. Um, I think there's certainly a need for more research, longitudinal kind of perspective studies that are going to follow cohort cohorts, you know, starting early in life over the course of life to see what those effects are. But I think we just don't really have kind of big studies that can help us um, adequately answer that specific question. Yeah. This is Schools In with Denise Pope and Dan Schwartz. We are joined by Jonas Miller today talking about the new map of life project at Stanford and really the effect on early ed when we know that kids are going to live maybe up to 100 and beyond. And and Jonas, I know because you are an early ed specialist, um, there's something called adverse life experiences. I'm probably not going to get that term right. It's ACEs, but I can't think of what the C stands for. So walk us, okay, walk yeah. us through what that means and, and how we'll know if a kid has experienced them. Yeah. ACEs is kind of this umbrella term that captures a broad range of different experiences, things like maltreatment, exposure to violence, parental mental health issues, things like that. Um, increasingly, you're starting to see assessments of these things in different institutions where adults regularly come into contact with children. So for example, pediatric offices, for example. Um, and so there, there are questionnaires for assessing exposure to these different kinds of things. Um, yeah. I, I'd say that's one of the main ways that we do it, at least in, in the science. Okay. And, and so let's say you have a kid who has experienced violence as an adverse childhood experience or, I don't know, uh, uh, homelessness, right? What, what does that, what is that connected to? What does that, does it predict anything? Are they more, is something more likely to happen to these children? Yeah. These kinds of experiences dramatically increase the risk for the development of psychological problems as well as, as well as physical health problems, not just in childhood, but in adulthood as well. So they account for approximately half of psychiatric disorders in childhood and about third of disorders later in adulthood, and uh, they dramatically increase the risk for age-related disease, health problems, things like cardiovascular disease, Alzheimer's, dementia, things like that. So it's kind of important what happens to you as a three-year-old or four-year-old. This could have consequences, particularly if you're living to 100. Absolutely, yeah. And they're incredibly prevalent as well. In fact, the majority of children in this country will be exposed to at least one of these uh, types of ACEs. 
This is Schools In with Denise Pope and Dan Schwartz. We're talking with Jonas Miller about early childhood experiences, um, particularly adverse childhood experiences that will have some long-term ramifications for kids. Dan, did you have a question? Uh, you said prevalent. Can you, can you put a percent to that? Is it like one in five, four in five? kids uh, experience this? Yeah, I think some estimates are at about 70% of kids will experience at least one adverse childhood event uh, prior to the age of 18. Yeah, so that's a good argument for preparing educators to be able to recognize and respond if we know how to respond. Absolutely. To to these kinds of things, the the consequences. Can you, I mean, it makes you think... uh, Okay, these things happen. Parents don't necessarily have control if you're if you're in a homeless situation or or whatnot, right? I know that's one of the adverse childhood experiences. What can be done? What can preschool do for a three year old or a four year old who's experienced these adverse childhood experiences? One, just sending kids to preschool has the capacity to potentially reduce exposure to childhood experiences. And there are a few different ways that that might happen. So there's a lot of evidence that preschools are perhaps a vehicle of social mobility. We know that a lot of ACEs occur or are um, that children growing up in poverty at increased risk for experiencing ACEs. Um, We know that preschools provide families, particularly single mothers, with opportunities to seek out employment, uh, to gain uh, training and adult education. And so those kinds of things you could imagine perhaps um, may increase the number of resources in the family and decrease uh, subsequently children's exposure to ACEs. So that's one possible way. Um, For many children, schools are often uh, safe environments, perhaps compared to uh, other environments where they're spending their time. So I think if we can increase the number of children uh, who are growing up in these chaotic, unpredictable, potentially dangerous environments, increase their enrollment in preschool, given that we know that the majority of children, um, young children under the age of three in this country, do not attend uh, full day, day, uh, full-time daycare and preschool, that that could also um, maybe decrease their exposure to these ACEs. Mm. I'd, I'd like to back off a little bit from this and go back to more of the question, the, the initial premise that what happens early has long-term consequences. So I'm sort of trying to imagine how I would run that study, right? I'd, I'd enroll 10,000 kids, and then I'd find out about their environmental conditions, uh, their ACEs, uh, what they did in preschool, all that. And then I would follow them for 100 years. And then, You need a lot of money to do that, Dan. Uh, well, <laughs> if we're going to have universal pre-K, yeah, this, yeah, my study would be a drop in the bucket. Okay, all right. Uh, and so I'm tracking these kids, and I think I'm on my way. And then suddenly COVID hits, yeah. right? And so that changes everything. So there's no natural state that I'm studying anymore. Mm. Then World War III hits, right? And something else happens. And and so can can we really draw a line from early childhood to a hundred with all these other things that happen in the world that are utterly unpredictable? Yeah, so you could imagine maybe that line is quite squiggly, right? Like there are kind of peaks and drops if you're thinking about 
I don't know, uh, functioning skills that are important for life success, but maybe they kind of ride this sort of wave or kind of like underlying trajectory such that even though you see fluctuations over time, on average, there's maybe some kind of trajectory that starts early in childhood. So I think it depends on kind of the lens by which you, you look at your data, if that makes sense. Uh, a little. Uh, so in this study, it, I would want to look at individual differences. I would want to understand why some children have certain trajectories and other children don't. Right. And, yeah. and so, you know, maybe I enroll 5,000 kids who went to a great pre-K program and 5,000 kids who did not. Right. And I sort of try and follow them out. The thought is life has so much stuff happen that's driven by the external world. Right. Could I actually draw the line? So uh, here, here's an analogy. It's a pretty far analogy. But uh, I was talking to someone who knows a great deal about federal politics. And I was asking, do you think uh, the new president will succeed? And he said, it doesn't depend on the president. It depends on what happens in the rest of the world. Because he's going to have to respond and react to that. And there's no way to predict that. So I sort of feel like that sometimes about early childhood, right? That uh, there's so much of what's going to happen to them is due to happenstance in the world, yeah. right? And so it's very hard for the science to be able to track through that. That doesn't, that doesn't mean, you know, I think extremely negative events, you can't, you'll be able to track. It's more like the benefits of preschool versus not, you know, so they've tracked it to yeah. economic outcomes and they, you know, they show there's some financial reward to society for that. Can we, can we really go beyond that? Anyway, sorry, Denise. Well, I think we should answer that question when we get back. This is Schools In with Denise Pope and Dan Schwartz, and we will have more with Jonas Miller about the New Map of Life Project and Early Childhood Education next on SiriusXM. This is Schools In. I'm not an expert at this. Okay. I'm more expert than you. When you can't read in American society, you are really left out. With Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope from the campus of Stanford University. Welcome back to Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. We are talking today with Jonas Miller, who is uh, part of the New Map of Life Project at Stanford Center for Longevity, particularly looking at early childhood experiences. Okay, so I'm, I'm done with my rant. Let, let me ask the question in a very simple way. Is it really possible to measure the experiences of very young children and see their effects uh, through the age of 95? Yes, I believe it is. And in response to your earlier rant slash question about, um, you know, how do we track the kind of residual effects of early childhood when all these different challenges like COVID and uh, other things come up over the course of life? I think it's the case that things that happen in early childhood facilitate the development of skills that are important for facing those challenges over the course of a long life. And so things that uh, happen in early childhood help to set people up for things like resilience, decrease their vulnerability to the adverse effects of um, challenges like COVID, for example. I see. It's so, so, oh, go ahead. Denise. Go ahead. No, no, go, Denise. Well, I just think it's so interesting that like ACEs in themselves are considered bad, right? Poverty or homelessness or whatever. But maybe the experience of going through them coupled with preschool uh, can give you more resilience, right? So mm -hmm. I don't know. Is that, do you see the conundrum there? Do you see the tension? 
I do. I mean, I mean, it's important. It's important to point out that even though ACEs are extremely prevalent and that they're really powerful predictors of health and well-being, not everyone who experiences them goes on to develop problems, right? And so, people have pointed out that resilience is something that is extremely common, perhaps even uh, what you see in the majority of children in the context of adversity. And I think that things like preschool, other kinds of institutions and 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 systems. Uh, are potentially contributing to that uh, prevalent resilience. Mm, nice. So, okay, million-dollar question. Knowing what you know about early childhood experiences and education, what's your advice out there for parents? Uh, my advice is informed by the research, but also just my kind of personal experiences. So I have two kids. My older son is six, and I recall when he was in preschool going to these parent-teacher meetings, and everyone was really concerned about whether the, what the teachers were doing to get their children ready for the next stage, right? Whether they could get them uh, such that they could stay in their seat and stay still for 20 to 30 minutes at a time. I think, you know, here in Palo Alto, in the Bay Area, we live in an extremely advantaged community, and yet, nevertheless, uh, we're seeing incredibly high rates of problems. Um, you know, I think something like 40 to 60% of teenagers in some of the high schools around here report experiencing anxiety symptoms in the clinically significant range. So I do think some of that is traced to um, this kind of culture of making um, early childhood mm, I guess kind of shrinking what early childhood is or, or shrinking what it maybe used to be. Mm. Um, if that, if that makes sense. And so I, I try to keep in mind that childhood is a, a special unique period in, in life in which children have historically or recently been given the time and space to play and explore. And um, I try to use that as something to guide how I, um, you know, set up my kid's life or help to set up his life. Okay. Now, now you're totally speaking my language, right? This is, this is, I'm so with you, Jonas, right? Um, at challenge success, we have this thing called PDF playtime, downtime, family time, protective factors for kids. And it sounds like everyone was saying the new first grade, the new kindergarten is like the new first grade. Right. And so yeah. this idea that childhood is contracting and we're pushing kids too hard. And we have these parents who want their kids to sit for 30 minutes in preschool, I'm right there with you with that advice to sort of bring back this notion of childhood. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's not just that um, we're shrinking childhood in terms of experiences and activities. I think you could look at the evidence and see that even biologically children's bodies are older today than they were in the recent, uh, uh, than children's bodies were in the recent past. So Dan, you were, you know, talking earlier about, puberty, right? So kids today start puberty earlier than they did in the past. And nowhere is that more true than here in the United States. Um, and you see, you know, higher rates of uh, physical health problems that contribute to age-related diseases. The obesity rates among preschool-age children have tripled over the last 30 to 50 yeah, years. Yet we're going to live to 100 years. On average. <laughs> maybe maybe, maybe <laughs> not those really overweight, stressed out kids aren't going to live to 100 years, but yeah, that's, 
That's interesting. Uh, this is Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. We're speaking with Jonas Miller about early childhood education and how we have contracted the time of childhood. Um, and, and I do see it. I mean, people always so, say, oh, yeah, go ahead. Dan. So, go ahead. so uh, do you think that differs between uh, older and younger parents? So like, like I'm an older parent, I've, I've got, I have a job. I also have money. So I can buy all the plastic toys for my child that I want them to play with. But I don't send them out in the backyard and say, go figure it out on your own because time is precious and I happen to have money. Uh, or, or is it, do you think that's a thing? Like older and younger parents raise their kids differently in ways that'll have an effect down the line. I, I understand yeah. this is a spectacular generalization yeah. that I'm asking for. <laughs> I, I am aware of that. This is not at all what Jonas has studies yeah. and has data on. However, well, I was wondering if anybody does. Yeah. I, I'm not sure. I think it's a really good, you could extend that question to thinking about just what are the things that pattern kind of differences in, in parenting and kind of parental attitudes and socialization. I know that um, some people say that um, there's cultural differences in parenting, right? And there was a time when all those books came out, like the French way to wear, you know, raise a kid or the tiger mom way to raise a kid or the whatever. There are all those like cultural differences in, in parenting styles. So it'll be interesting to see if there was a study for, for age differences as well. Yeah. I mean, cultural differences, it makes me think about how the challenges, especially here, right, where we have this really diverse society that we celebrate um, and yet we want to develop policies that are gonna, everyone can agree upon that are gonna help everyone in a similar way. It's extremely challenging. Well, it's also challenging because preschools are different from public schools, right? So public schools are, are locally run with school boards for better or for worse, right? But if we're talking about universal preschool, I wonder if that means that they'd have to abide not by necessarily the public rule, but by by federal rules. So I think, I mean, even more to your point, Jonas, Jonas that that could be really hard to get broad agreement around that. Yeah. And it's an open question about what would be the ideal version of universal pre-K, right? So earlier you were talking about um, certification and what are the, the things that we think of as kind of being indicators of high quality pre-K? Is it that, or is it more about, you know, like we were saying, giving, giving children time and space to do things that come naturally to them. Mm. Got to run the study. I know this is <laughs> right. right. We take, we take 5,000 kids and we put them in a school that basically drills them in memorization of math <laughs> and the ABCs. And then we take another 5,000 and we put them in a school that focuses on social emotional learning. And then we take another 5,000 and we put them in a school where the kids just have to run around nuts and play. And then, no, like no structured activity whatsoever. Like just oh, go outside and play. Give them a sandbox. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. And then, and then we come back 80 years and we see how they're all doing. Let what, me just know. point out that you and I will not be coming back in 80 years. <laughs> Someone else will have to then take over for the aged researcher. <laughs> all right. Well, more to come on the new Map of Life project. Thank you, Jonas, for joining us. And thank all of you for listening to Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Coates. If you missed any of this episode, listen anytime on demand with the SiriusXM app and anywhere you listen to podcasts. 
from the campus of Stanford University. This has been Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope on Sirius XM Business Radio. If you missed any of it, listen on demand, online or with the Sirius XM app. 